I want to ask you this morning to really think about that song we just sang together. What is that song at its core? Well, if you pay close attention to the words that you just sang, then you will see that at its core, that song is an appeal. It is a prayer. It is a petition to God to shape us and mold us and make us a certain way. Make me a servant. Make me like Jesus. Make me like the son of God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Why is it so important that we do that? Why is it so important that we make that appeal together as the people of God? Well, the reason why that is so important is because let's just be honest about it this morning. Being a servant, it's not easy. That's not easy. That's not something that's cheered on by the world and something that we are naturally inclined to do. In fact, the truth is thinking like a servant and trying to live a life of a servant, that, that's hard. That, that is difficult. That certainly was difficult for the apostles, the men who were special ambassadors of Jesus. Go back to Mark chapter 10, where our scripture reading came from this morning. If you go back to Mark chapter 10, I want you to notice the mentality of the apostles in those verses Brother Nelson read for us this morning. Notice their mindset. Notice how on that occasion in their lives, they're not focused on the needs of one another. They're not focused on being humble. They're not focused on getting their hands dirty and getting on their knees and washing one another's feet. Instead, they're thinking like the world. They're thinking like the Gentile rulers of that day. They're focused on status and position and, and lording over each other and being in competition. They're viewing greatness from the standpoint of power and authority and being able to boss other people around and tell people what to do. But notice how Jesus combats that thinking. As Jesus notices how his apostles during this time are in competition with each other and trying to have authority over each other in the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 10 and in verse number 45, the Bible says that Jesus called them to himself and he said to them, verse 42, verse 42, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not this way among you. It's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you should be your servant. And whoever wishes to become first among you shall be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Notice how Jesus combats the thinking that was very, very prevalent during that time and also very prevalent. During our time today, notice how according to Jesus, the path to greatness and the kingdom of God is not found in being a boss. It's not found in being a CEO. It's not found in sitting at the head of the table and trying to be exalted above other people. Instead, the path to greatness in the kingdom of God is found in being a servant. It's found in being a slave. It's found in being the kind of person who's willing to get on their knees and roll up their sleeves and attend to the needs of other people. The servant is the person who achieves greatness. 
and the kingdom of God. In fact, not only does Jesus call his people to be servants, but he also blazed the trail. He also provided us with a model or an example. He also devoted his entire life to being a servant. Do we not see that in John, the 13th chapter? When Jesus gets on his knees and he washes the 24 dirty, smelly, disgusting feet of his apostles. And do we not also see that here in Mark 10 in verse 45, when he says that the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And are we not also going to read about this this week in Philippians chapter two? Where in Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus emptied and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus lived the life of a servant. And he has called us as his people to be servants. And again, I emphasize to you, doing that is easier said than done. It's, it's not easy. Thinking, thinking that way constantly, that, that's not easy. Making that the goal and ambition of your life, that, that's not easy. Even viewing church leaders in that way is not easy. You see, the will of God, not just for Monta Vista, but for every single local church is for a local church to have leaders. God wants local churches to have leaders. He wants them to have qualified leadership. He wants them to have shepherds that are also in the Bible called pastors or elders or bishops or overseers. And he also wants local churches to have deacons. You see, men who are shepherds or pastors or bishops or overseers or elders, they are not church bosses. They're not church bosses. They're not church lords or CEOs. They're not church presidents or emperors. Instead, shepherds or elders are servants. They are servant leaders. They are men who serve the people of God through leading them and feeding them and guiding them and restoring them whenever they began to wander away from the family. Elders or shepherds or pastors or servant leaders, and the same is also true with deacons. Deacons are also servant leaders. In fact, the term deacon itself means, it literally means servant. It means minister. It means attendant. It is a word that's actually used dozens and dozens of times throughout the New Testament. Sometimes the word is used as a noun. Sometimes it's used as a verb. Sometimes the word is actually used to describe Jesus and the work that Jesus did when he came into this world. Sometimes the word is actually used to talk about a preacher and the work of a preacher or the work of an evangelist. Sometimes the word is used to describe the work of the government or the work of Christians in a general way. And then sometimes the word is also used to talk about men who've been appointed by a local church to minister to the specific needs of that church. In fact, we currently have five men in this church 
who served in the office of deacon. And very soon we're going to be appointing some more men to be deacon and to help us prepare for that. The elders or the shepherds of this church have asked me just to take a, a few moments to rehearse with you some important things about the works of these servant leaders. They want me to rehearse with you a few things about the work of deacons and what the Bible has to say about deacons. And let's just start right with this right here. What in the world do they do? What do they do? What do deacons do? I think that's a good question for us to explore because it is often the case that many members of a local congregation, many Christians don't have a clue of what deacons do. They don't have a clue. They have an erroneous view of their work and their roles. You see, contrary to what a lot of people wrongly believe, and listen carefully, please, contrary to what a lot of people wrongly believe, the Bible does not teach that deacons are junior elders. The Bible does not teach that deacons are junior elders. The Bible does not teach that a man must occupy the office of a deacon before he can one day become an elder. The Bible does not teach that the work of a deacon is the training ground for him to one day become an elder. The Bible does not teach that the church is like a corporation where men got to rise up through the ranks and they got to be promoted from a deacon from a deacon to an elder, and that's the way that God wants it to be. The Bible doesn't teach that the church is like a corporation where God's got to rise up through the ranks. they got to become deacons first before they can become elders. It also doesn't teach that deacons are men who've been awarded a second-place consolation prize. They couldn't be, they're not qualified to be elders, and so we'll just make them feel good by giving them a little ribbon and let them be deacons. The Bible doesn't teach that. Bible doesn't teach that deacons, being a deacon is a work given to a man so he can wear a title or so he can be given a training ground to one day become an elder. If you believe that, please stay away from me and never tell me that because I'll get angry with you. That's not true. That's not what the Bible says. Instead, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that when it comes to the work of a deacon, the work of a deacon is a work unto itself. It is a work in a different lane. It is a work that is separate from the role and the function of the work of a shepherd and even the work of a preacher. And I think a good place we can go here to see this, if you don't mind, is a place many of you have already studied a few weeks ago, but I want to ask you to go there, if you don't mind, this morning, Acts chapter 6. When you go in your Bible to Acts chapter 6, this is going to be one of the main texts we look at today. And I know you studied it recently, but I think we're not going to do this lesson justice if we don't study it again this morning. So in Acts the 6th chapter, we read about what was going on 2,000 years ago in the first congregation, the Jerusalem congregation, the Jerusalem church. And in Acts chapter 6 and verse number 1, it says, now at this time... While the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God 
in order to serve tables, in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procreus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were being or becoming obedient to the faith. And so notice carefully what Luke, the writer of Acts, is telling us here about the Jerusalem congregation. Notice how, according to Luke, while the church in Jerusalem is growing, while it is thriving, while it is doing some amazing things in the cause of God, a problem arises. A problem arises, and the problem that arises in this congregation is very different than the other problems they faced up to this point. You see, this problem that they're facing at this time is not an external problem. It's not a problem coming from without the church. It's not a problem like the church experiencing persecution, opposition from those who oppose the gospel. Instead, this problem here is internal. This is an internal problem. This is a problem that is coming from within the church. Some widows in the church were not being properly cared for. They're not receiving enough attention. They're not receiving the benevolence they need during this very difficult time. This problem that we read about here posed a serious threat to the cause of God at this time because it could have divided the church. It could have split the church. It could have brought a lot of hostility between the two different groups of Jews that comprised the church at this time. It also could have distracted the apostles from the primary work that God had given them to do. The primary work that they had been given by God, according to what they say, is not serving tables. It's not looking after widows. Instead, it's preaching and praying. God wants them to be preaching and praying. And if they got to deal with these widows, that's going to distract them from the primary work God has given them. This is a big problem. in the Jerusalem church and the question is, what was their solution? How did they solve this problem? Well, the Bible says that this congregation in Jerusalem solved this problem by appointing some men. They appointed some men. They appointed seven men. They appointed seven men to be servants, special servants or ministers in this congregation. And I have to emphasize to you that according to what the scripture says, it was the church that appointed these men. We have to get that straight. The church appointed these men, not the elders. Not the apostles even. Not Peter, not James, not John, not Matthew. The Bible says the church appointed these seven men to be servants, special ministers and servants in the church. And notice they were appointed by the church to be over this work. 
to be put in charge of this task. That language put in charge of this task or over this work means that these men would have authority. They would have authority over the work that had been given to them. They were not going to be micromanaged by the apostles. They were not going to have to constantly bug the apostles. They were not going to have to constantly go to Peter, James and John and say, hey, is it OK if we buy some pots and pans? Is it OK if we buy this kind of food? Is it OK that we if we enlist these kind of people, these certain Christians to help us do this work? The apostles were not going to micromanage what these guys did. If they had to do that, it was going to defeat the purpose of them being appointed in the first place. I mean, what's the point of appointing the these guys? The very five minutes they show up and ask permission to do something. Oh, can we buy this? Can we buy that? Okay, we, we got to preach and pray. You're always bugging us all the time. Can't you make some decisions on your own? You are over this work. You're put in charge of this task. You don't have to bug us all the time. Get the job done. We wouldn't put you in this position if we didn't trust you to make good decisions. They're put in charge of these tasks. And a lot of Christians struggle with this today. They really struggle with this because they got a corporate idea when it comes to how the church is organized. They view elders as church bosses and deacons got to report to them all the time about every little thing. Can we buy a broom? Can we buy a mop? No, go get it done. Why we put you here in the first place? Get the work done. And that's what these guys are doing. They are put in charge of this task. In fact, part of this would have included involving other people in the work. You know, in our time today, we kind of have a weird view of the size of congregations. We'll look at a church of three or 400 people and say, man, that's a, that's a pretty big church. Where my friend Don Truex preaches in Temple Terrace, they're about 500 members, so that's a big congregation. Where Brother Roger Shouse preaches, they're about 300 and some people. That's a, that's a big congregation. Well, if you were to take a Christian from Jerusalem and put them in a time machine and bring them here and let them go visit Temple Terrace where Brother Roger preaches, they would look around for a few minutes ago. Man, that's kind of small. That's a small church. You only got 500 people here? Because Acts 2 verse 41 says that the church in Jerusalem started out with how many? 3,000. And then when you get to Acts 4 and verse 4, that same congregation has 5,000 men. The word men there in that text is adult males. That means you could have had up to 15,000, 20,000 people when you count the women and the young people who are disciples. That's a big congregation. That's a big congregation. And you know what that means practically? That practically means that there could have been hundreds maybe thousands of widows in this congregation who needed to be cared for. And do you think these seven men who have been appointed to this work of service tended to the needs of those widows all by themselves? Do you think they went out and bought all the pots and all the pans? You think they did all the cooking and all the baking? You think they did all the delivering of food to those different widows? Of course not. Of course not. Being over the work didn't mean they had to do all the work. It didn't mean they couldn't enlist the help of other Christians and get other Christians involved in the work. These men were appointed by the church. And they were put in charge of a particular work. 
And they certainly would have involved others in that work. And I believe, in my view, these are the first deacons to ever be appointed in the church. I believe these are the first deacons to ever be appointed in the congregation, in a congregation. If they're, if they're not deacons, they're certainly doing the work of deacons. They are over a particular task. But the question is, what about our guys? What about our deacons? What kind of works are our deacons involved in here at Monte Vista? Well, my dear friends, like these men in Jerusalem who were appointed to serve over important works, let me suggest that the men we've appointed to be deacons here are also serving over important works. They're also stewards over physical aspects of God's spiritual work. They are involved in works like caring for widows and shut-ins, just like you got, like these guys here in Acts chapter 6. Some of them are involved in works over technology. And works that have to do with maintenance and landscaping and security. Some of them are involved in works tied to preparing us to worship God and preparing teaching materials and class materials and a whole host of other things. Our deacons we have here are over so many critical works that help us be successful as the Monte Vista Church of Christ. And how often do you think about that? How often do you think about the, all the work? that our deacons do here at Monte Vista. How often do you consider the fact that because of the work of deacons, because of the work of some of our deacons, when you got here this morning, the lights were on. You're not sitting in the dark this morning. We're able to use PowerPoint right now. The temperature is just right in the room so we can be comfortable while we worship God. We got a nice big parking lot out there so we can park our cars and we got security out there right now helping us feel safe. And if we baptize somebody today, which I hope we do, the water's not going to be freezing. I was really happy about that last Sunday. <laughs> really happy about that. And we got an amazing website. Facebook page, YouTube, YouTube channel, and if you go to the restroom today, you're going to have toilet paper in there and paper towels and everything else you need. How does all that stuff get done? Well, a lot of that is because of the work of deacons, the work of men who have been put over certain tasks that are critically important to God's spiritual work. In fact, that brings us to the next thing we need to say about deacons, and that's this. We know what they do, but what are, they, what are their qualifications? What are their qualifications? We talk a lot about the qualifications of elders. But what about the qualifications of deacons? Well, there are a couple places in the Bible where we find their qualifications. One is right here in Acts 6. If you look at verse number 3 again, when the congregation is determining who they're going to appoint to be their, their deacons, in Acts 6 and verse 3, it says, Therefore, brethren, talking to the congregation, select from among you seven men, of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Now, I want you to put that with what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, after the Apostle Paul gives us the qualifications for shepherds or elders in verses 1 through 7, beginning in verse number 8 of 1 Timothy 3, the Bible says deacons likewise must be men of dignity, 
not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also be first tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are above reproach or beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be the husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So I want you to notice as we start trying to break all that down, the first thing we need to appreciate is according to what the scriptures say, just like in the case of elders or shepherds, not, any, not just anybody can be a deacon. Do you see that? Not just anybody at Monte Vista can be a deacon. Deacons have certain specific qualifications that have been given by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, the Holy Spirit tells us that if a man is going to be a deacon, he's got to have a, a good reputation. He's got to be a respected man. He's got to be the kind of man who is always shining his light in his community. He's always shining his Christian light among the people he comes into contact with every single day. He's a man of good reputation, both in the church, both outside the church. He's also a spiritual man. This is a spiritual man. This is a man full of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. This is a man who is influenced by the Holy Spirit. He is a man who is influenced by the teachings of the Holy Spirit. He tries his best to produce the fruits of the Spirit in his life. He's an authentic follower of Jesus Christ. He is a man that is very spiritual and he's a man of wisdom. He's full of wisdom. He's a man capable of making good, sound decisions. He has good judgment. A church does not need to appoint a man to be a deacon and they don't trust his judgment. This man has to be a wise man because he's not going to be micromanaged. He's got to have some wisdom, some good judgment. He can make decisions on his own. And those decisions are going to be what's best for the congregation. He also has to be a man of good godly character. Paul tells Timothy, he's got to be dignified. He's got to be a dignified man. This is a serious man. Not meaning he's serious all the time. He can't joke and play around a little bit, but he knows when to get serious. He knows when to get serious. He's worthy of respect. He's worthy of honor. He's noble. He knows what is right and good and righteous, and he's all about pursuing those things all the time. This is a dignified man, and he's not a man that's double-tongued. He's not double-tongued. He's not speaking out of both sides of his mouth. This is a man who's sincere. He's genuine. He's honest. He tells the truth. He's a man of integrity, and he has self-control. This is a self-controlled man. He's not a lazy glutton. He doesn't live an undisciplined and careless life. I believe that's exactly what Paul is talking about when he says he's not given to much wine. This is a sober-minded man. This is a man of self-control, and he's also a man who's not greedy. He's not a covetous man. He's not a man who's going to be unethical and do dishonest things for money. Why does he have to have that quality? Well, because there are many times when deacons are called upon to handle money. They got to deal with money. They got to sometimes give money to Christians that, that need help. 
They got to sometimes buy things pertaining to their work. So that's why they can't be greedy. They can't be dishonest because they're being trusted with money often in their work. And they also are men that are tested. The right word there to think about is the word examined. That's the idea. They are examined. A congregation must examine these men. They must examine their character. They must examine their character and whether or not it is blameless. They must examine whether or not their character matches up with their claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. Their character must be tested. It must be examined, but not just them. So do their wives. Do you see that in the text? Their wives have certain qualifications to meet. They can't be gossips. They can't be busybodies. They can't be unholy women because they're going to play a role in the work of their husbands. They got to be dignified. They got to be faithful. They got to have self-control. Their character must also be tested. And these men must be family men. Got to be family men. They got to be married. And they got to be faithful to their wives. Can't be flirtatious men. Got to be faithful to their wives. Got to be good managers of their children. They got to be husbands. They got to be fathers. And the question that is often raised is, okay, how how old exactly do their children have to be? How old exactly does the children of a deacon have to be? Do they have to be adults? Do they got to be at least teenagers? Do they have to be children who are Christians? Do they have to have obeyed the gospel? Notice how if we just look at what the Bible says in the text, the Bible doesn't say any of that stuff. It doesn't say any of that stuff. Bible doesn't give any kind of age or even spiritual requirement for the children of a deacon. Instead, it gives a requirement for him. It gives a requirement for his leadership. It says he must be a good manager of his children. You know what that means? That means a deacon's children can be younger. They can be small. They can be very small. They don't have to be as proven as the children of an elder. And the reason why is given in verse 5 of the chapter. And in 1 Timothy 3, verse number 5, Paul tells us why it's so important that an elder's children be tested and viewed in a more critical way, it's because they are a reflection of his leadership. I mean, if he can't, if he can't lead his own family, how is he going to lead God's people? That's why there's a difference between the children and the qualifications for kids between an elder and a deacon. Elders' kids must be examined because they're dealing with people. They're shepherding souls. And deacons have a work that's in a totally different dimension and a different realm. And so there is no age requirement for a deacon's children. Instead, there's a requirement for his leadership, regardless of the age of his children. He must be a good manager of his kids. He's got to have a good reputation, must be a spiritual man, full of wisdom, dignified, not double tongued, self-controlled, not greedy, a tested man. His wife is, is past the test as far as character goes. And he's a man who leads his family in the ways of God. These are the qualifications, not given by Sean Jeffries, but given by the Holy Spirit for a man to be a deacon. And here's the application from all of this. The application is this. Choosing men to be deacons is serious business. Do you see that? 
We can't play games with this. We can't minimize this. It, this is just as serious as choosing men to be elders. This also requires that we study. And that we pray and that we evaluate people's character and judgment and their families and appoint men who have met not our qualifications, but God's qualifications. This is serious business, what we are about to do. And the reason why it's so serious is because their work impacts the church. It impacts the church. And we see that in going back to Acts chapter six one more time. If you go back to Acts six, how did those. How did the work of those seven men who were appointed in Jerusalem, how did that impact the church? Well, I think they impacted the, impacted the church in several ways, and the Bible is very specific about this. First, because of their appointment, this problem was solved. It was solved. The widows were cared for, and unity and peace was maintained in the church. The apostles were also freed to focus on their work. They were free to focus on preaching and praying. That's what God wanted them to focus on. And these seven men being appointed freed them up. They could focus on their work. In fact, verse number five says that their appointment pleased everybody. Everybody was pleased with this. Do you see that in verse five? That is an incredible statement found in the Bible, because today it's hard to get two or three Christians to agree on anything. And yet you got thousands of Christians agreeing on this. That's incredible to me. Very rare. Everybody's pleased with the appointment of these men. And then the biggest thing, souls were won. Souls were won for the cause of God. You see that in verse 7? The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of even the priests, even Jewish priests, were becoming obedient to the faith because these men were over that work. The gospel could go out, it could be preached, and people could obey it and become Christians. So they are involved in spiritual work as well as physical work. You see that? These men did some good work, a lot of good, resulted from their appointment, and the same is true today. Nothing's changed. Because of the work of our deacons, a lot of necessary work gets done in this church and various other servants are able to serve in the way God intends. Instead of focusing on tech stuff and parking lots and thermostats and making sure that the water is warm in the baptistry, our eight shelter shepherds here are able to focus on what God wants them to focus on. And that's people, not thermostats, people. Not parking lots, people. Not water in the baptistry, people, souls, feeding sheep, nurturing sheep, counseling sheep, restoring the sheep who have wandered away from the family. That's the work God wants shepherds to do. And because of our deacons, our shepherds are able to focus on that work. And I'm so thankful for that. In fact, not only am I thankful for that. I'm also thankful that because of the good work of our deacons, I get to focus on my work of being a preacher. I get to focus on my work of studying the Bible and teaching the word of God. I am thankful that when this baptistry needed repairing a couple of weeks ago, many of y'all know it needed some repairing. Sean Jefferson have to spend two seconds on that. 
I didn't have to be taken away from my work as a preacher to focus on that. We have a wonderful deacon here who's over that work. He made sure it got done. And I, and I didn't have to be taken away from my work. And the same is also true when we have AC issues. And when we need to repave the parking lot or change light bulbs or communicate with our security company or tend to the needs of widows or even adjust the thermostat. Because of good, hardworking and qualified deacons, I don't have to be distracted. I don't have to be taken away from my work as a preacher or as an evangelist. When a church follows God's plan for organization, everybody can do their work effectively. Everybody can focus on the kind of work that God wants them to do. The question, though, is, is what can you do? What can you do? What can you do at this time when we are about to, Lord willing, appoint some more deacons? Well, let me give you just a few things very quickly. I promise very quickly. Here are some practical things you can do right now to help with this process. First, take the process seriously. Take the process seriously. Take it just as seriously as she took the process that we recently went through through to appoint additional shepherds. Don't view this as not a big deal. This is a big deal. Take it seriously and maintain a proper view of deacons. Remember who they are. Remember what they do. Remember they are not junior elders. They are not men who are taking on a work to prepare them to one day become elders. They are involved in a different kind of work and they're going to have a different kind of responsibility. That's what the Bible says. That's where we got to stay. Have a proper view of their work. And then thoroughly follow their example. These men are servants. They have the mind of servants. They want to live the life of a servant. Let's strive to imitate that. Let's have minds of servants and have the life of a servant. Let's desire to serve like they desire to serve. And then how about praying about it? Pray fervently about this. Pray for our elders, our shepherds who do a wonderful job. I can't say it enough. I can't say it enough. And I mean it from the bottom of my heart. Pray for them as they lead, lead us in this process. Pray for our current deacons. Pray for their wives. Pray for the men whose names are going to be put forward. Pray that they're truly qualified. Pray that they do their work with zeal and passion and with a desire for excellence. Pray that they stay humble and stay committed to the work that they're going to be given to do. Pray fervently about this process. In fact, let's pray right now. Will you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we bow our heads at this time as your humble servants, asking you to bless us as a congregation, to bless us as we try to do your will and appoint additional men to be servant leaders in this congregation. Bless us in this process. Bless our shepherds who lead us in this process. Thank you for their wonderful work. Thank you for our current deacons. Thank you for those who desire to be deacons. Thank you for their families. We pray, Father, that your will will be done, that we'll study the qualifications even more, that we will trust you in this process, and that those who will be appointed will serve you well and serve you with excellence. 
Thank you that we are blessed with such great talent here in this congregation, that we have men to even consider. We give you the glory for all that goes on here at Monte Vista, for the preaching of the gospel, the baptisms, the appointment of additional elders, the deacons we have and the deacons we hope to soon appoint. Thank you for blessing us in so many ways, and please continue to be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to close with one more scripture for you. I'm going to close with one more scripture. It's that 1 Timothy 3.13 passage where the Bible says in 1 Timothy 3 verse 13, For those who have served well as deacons, obtaining for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. For those who are currently serving as deacons and for those who aspire to be deacons, notice how the Bible says you have high standing before God. You have a high confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. That's what the Bible says about servant leaders. In fact, this is true not only of elders and deacons, but also of all of those who strive to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus says the path to greatness in the kingdom is being a servant. And the question is, are you serving God? Are you serving God? You don't have to be an elder or a deacon to go to heaven. But you do have to be a servant of Jesus to go to heaven. And so this morning, if there's anyone who needs to begin that journey to serve Jesus, you're going to have an opportunity to do so as we sing this invitation song. You have an opportunity to confess your faith in Christ, repent of your sins, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. You can do that this morning, or if you are a Christian but you haven't been living that servant life, if you need to repent and have us pray with you and pray for you, we would be more than happy to serve you at this time. If there's anyone here who needs to serve the Lord, come to the front right now as we stand and we sing together. When Jesus God